Mark chapter 8, beginning in verse 10, immediately got into the boat with his disciples and came to the region of Balmutha. Then the Pharisees came out and began to dispute with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven, testing him. But he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Assuredly, I say to you, no sign shall be given to this generation. And he left them and getting into the boat again, departed to the other side. In Mark chapter 8, we began the chapter with a look at the provision of the servant as he feeds the multitudes in verses 1 through 10. And now we see the provocation of the servant as he leaves in part the area of Decapolis and makes his way to the shores of the Galilee. The servant is going to be tested by the religious leaders in verses 11 through 13. You'll remember that the Pharisees demand a sign in verse 11, and Jesus will deny them in verse 13. Later, we'll see the patience of the Savior in verses 14 through 21, as Jesus warns his disciples to beware the leaven of the Pharisees and Herod. And next, we'll see the power of the servant as he heals a a man who is blind in Bethsaida in verses 22 through 26. So in chapter 8, it's going to move from the compassion of the servant in verses 1 through 9 to the concern of the servant in verses 10 through 21 to the condemnation of the servant in verses 22 through 26. And then a gate is going to open, a window is going to open, a door is going to open, and we're going to have a peek into the future, the crucifixion of of our Lord. In this particular point, The focus is going to be on the hard-heartedness and the unbelief of the religious leaders. It should cause you to ask a question of the text. By the way, throughout this passage, we're going to ask lots of questions of the text. Why are so many people spiritually blind? Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 3 and 4, But even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, whose minds the God of this world is blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of God, who is the image of of God, should shine on them. Paul writes that spiritual blindness in part is because there is a supernatural battle taking place all around us. There's an invisible world with angels and demons. There's an invisible world with interdimensional beings who are struggling. And the Bible makes it abundantly clear that the G.O.D., small G.O.D. of this world, Satan, has veiled the eyes that there are scales, if you will, upon certain people's eyes so that they can't see the light of the gospel. 
The Bible teaches that apart from Jesus Christ, or apart from Jesus, we are blind to our condition before God. That's what it says in Romans chapter 3, verse 11. We are blind to the beauty of Jesus according to Isaiah 53.1. We are blind to the grace of God according to Romans 11.8. We are blind to the things of God according to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9. We are blind to the presence of Christ according to Revelation 3.18. We are blind to the need of our new birth. In John chapter 3, verse 3, we are blind to the evil that's all around us, according to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 2 and 3. Most people are blind to the presence of God, to the mercy of God, to the care of God, to the gifts of God. But God can be easily seen by those who are willing to open their eyes by faith and who embark on a sincere quest for light and for truth. Instead of seeking God, most people use their considerable time and talent and treasure not to seek God, but to reject God. Not to find God, but to replace God with their own foolish thinking. And perhaps the greatest reason, the greatest reason, the greatest reason people spend so much time defining and defending their rebellion and their unbelief is the unpleasant, at least to them, task of surrendering to Jesus. They understand. They understand that the moment that they open the door, they op- the moment that they open their heart and the moment that they open their mind to the reality of who Jesus is and the claims of Jesus and the person of Jesus and the ministry of Jesus, it's going to require something. That your life is different. That your heart is different. Now Jesus will expose the faults and limitations of of the hard-hearted, wicked, dark, unbelieving hearts of those people who reject him. And so it begins with leaving the Decapolis and going to the lake of the Galilee. It says immediately he got, he got into the boat, that's Jesus, with his disciples, and he came to the region called Dalmanutha. And by the way, it's only in Mark chapter 8 that we hear that phrase, Dalmanutha. In Mark's, excuse me, in Matthew's gospel chapter 15, it says they came to the borders of Magdala or Magdam. If you have a Bible and it has maps, if you see the map of Israel and the coastline of Israel with Tyre, and you go south and you go to the Sea of Galilee, up just to your right is Bethsaida. Just to the left in the north is Capernaum. And if you go down the west side of the coast, this is the region called Magdan, Magdala. Technically, both cities are still in the region that was commonly called the Decapolis. This is the region where East meets West, where Jew meets Gentile. This is sort of the crossroads, if you will, of civilization from Syria to Egypt to Babylon to Rome. And it says in verse 11, then the Pharisees came and began to dispute with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven, testing him. Jesus gets into the boat, he crosses the lake, as soon as his feet hit the ground, the religious leaders attack him. 
And I've always found this interesting, particularly since I've become a Christian, how people are so insensitive and rude to the Savior. As a matter of fact, Mark mentions the Pharisees. Matthew provides the additional information that the Sadducees have joined forces with the Pharisees in an attempt to discredit Jesus and his ministry before the people. And so they unite together to confront him. And that's exactly what happens in our world. People who are at odds with one another will unite together in order to attack Jesus. And the boldness and the blindness of the religious leaders are enormous. The religious leaders demand a sign from heaven. They have no idea that Jesus is the sign from heaven. They certainly don't appreciate him. And so when the religious leaders are asking for a sign, they're not just asking for any sign. They're asking for an amazing and spectacular sign. They're asking for something that would suspend the law of physics. They're talking about a celestial sign. Something along the lines of Joshua causing the sun to stand still. Something like calling fire from heaven. Something like raining down bread from the sky. Don't you think it's odd? That the religious leaders request a sign in light of all of the miracles that have been recorded simply in Mark's gospel up to this point. Jesus has already provided irrefutable evidence of his miraculous powers. The blind see, not enough. The lepers are cleansed, not enough. The deaf hear, not enough. They speak, not enough. The dead are raised, not enough. The hungry are fed, not enough. The messianic prophecies are fulfilled. Not enough. The hopeless are raised from the private hell of despondency. Not enough. The religious leaders request a sign. And it was, in fact, a way of saying, Jesus... You haven't provided sufficient evidence for your messianic claims. What about the Old Testament prophecies? Staged. What about the miracles? Fabricated. What about the changed lives? Manipulated. Mark adds, testing him. The motives of the religious leaders are impure. The request itself is a sign. It's a sign of their wicked, dark, evil, persistent unbelief. And by the way, there's a direct relationship between spiritual blindness and motive. The religious leaders weren't being open and they weren't being honest. Theirs was not a sincere desire to know and embrace the truth. They were out to trick Jesus. They were out to disprove his claims. They were out to squash the Jesus movement. And the religious leaders saw Jesus as a dangerous deceiver, a religious imposter, at best mad, at worst demon-possessed. They think he's in league with the devil. And I'm amazed. I'm still amazed 
that human beings can use their considerable skills and their considerable resources and their considerable intellect, intellect to make inquiry into the natural world, the visible world, and they're still so oblivious to the invisible world and the spiritual world and the world of the mind and the world of the heart, the invisible world. The moment a person concedes that there might be a God, they have to ask the question, what kind of a God is God? The moment they concede that there's a spiritual world and a God who reveals himself and a God who communicates with the, with the world, there is this sense, this underlying sense in which each person understands that if there's a real God and if he's really revealed himself in the person of Jesus Christ, that there's a sense of submission and compliance to who he really is. People no more want to know Jesus than they want to know if they're a criminal, if there's cops nearby. Unless, of course, the criminal suspects that he or she is under surveillance or scrutiny and has to lay low until the danger passes. The person apart from Jesus wants justification. Not justification for their sin, but justification for their unbelief. They want to explain their carnal and worldly desires as being normal, even desirable, that greed is good. They have no intention of changing their thinking or their desire or their lifestyle. The human being, apart from God, doesn't want to discover the spiritual world and the heavenly kingdom and the spiritual Lord, an all-powerful God who wants loyalty and love and faith and righteousness and giving and sacrifice. But that's exactly what God requires. Repentance and faith and righteousness and love and sacrifice and compassion. God requires us when we look into the invisible world and we see the invisible God and that we care about what he cares about and his concerns become our concerns and his plans become our plans, then all of a sudden things are different. As a matter of fact, in Luke chapter 23, Jesus says, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whosoever will save his life will lose it. Whoever will lose his life for my sake will save it. And that's exactly what Mark is going to record later on in this chapter. And look what it says in verse 12, the dangers of seeking signs. But he, that's Jesus, he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, why does this generation seek a sign? Assuredly, I say to you, no sign shall be given to this generation. By the way, when it says, he sighed deeply, the Greek word translated, he sighed deeply, is very strong. It's very pointed. It's the word, anastenazas. It means, to draw sighs up from the bottom of the breast, to sigh deeply. The Amplified New Testament translates the passage, he groaned and sighed deeply in his spirit. Let me give you a picture. 
Imagine you have a 16-year-old daughter, and she's getting ready to go out. And Dad says, where are you going, and who are you going with? And she goes, that's the kind of sigh we're talking about. It's a sigh that's grief and indignation at the same time. How could you be so clueless? God! Oh my gosh! How could you even ask me that? Jesus asks the question, Why does this generation seek a sign? This is one of those points where you should ask yourself another question of the text. Go ahead. Look at your Bible, open it, and ask the question. Has there ever been a more privileged generation in the history of humanity? Haven't you ever wondered? Haven't you ever desired? Haven't you ever fantasized? I wish I could go back in time. I wish I could just go back in time and be with him and walk with him and talk with him. And you see eyes open and ears unstopped. You watch a leper transform right before your eyes. You follow Jesus and the disciples all the way to Bethany. There is the grave of Lazarus. You know what's going to happen. He's going to say, Lazarus, come forth. And a person who's been dead for four days, who's body is already starting to decay comes out of the ground and Jesus says let him loose you sneak next to the cross and you watch the suffering and you go to the place where he's buried and you plan to stay up because you know that he's going to rise from the dead. Has there ever been a more privileged generation? Has there ever been a more privileged people? Matchless words, marvelous miracles. But they are blind. They are blind. They are blind. The spiritually blind have impure motives. And the spiritually blind grieve the heart of the Lord Jesus. You know, the spiritually blind will counter with, well, you know, that's you. You go to church. You, you know, you have a Bible. You go to Calvary Chapel. For some reason, just going to church and having a Bible and reading about the miracles, you seem satisfied with that. But I need evidence. But no matter how much evidence is given, no matter how many signs are given, no matter how many miracles are prior provided there is just this sense of darkness and emptiness and hardness show me a sign look Lord Tebow's down by five touchdowns if he comes back in the greatest comeback in the history of playoff football I'll believe you I'll never doubt you again. See, you laugh at the the absurdity of it. Can you imagine Jesus going, you don't understand now, but one day you will. In 2012, in the playoffs, 
The Broncos are going to come back from the greatest deficit in the history of playoff football. You won't understand it now. You're going to have to wait 2,000 years, but soon you'll understand. But the truth is, that's exactly what we do. We laugh at the absurdity of that. But we don't laugh at the absurdity of the mom and dad who are at the hospital. And we say, Lord, I need a sign. I need a sign that you're there and that you care. We understand that in the emptiness and in the darkness, how people will cry out and they'll say, look, if you're really God, then my wife won't leave me. If you're really God, my husband won't leave me. If you're really God, then my children will come back. If you're really God, then you won't make me go to jail. If you're in jail, if you're really God, you'll get me out of here. I'm not talking about the person who has a sincere question. I'm not talking about people who have heartfelt doubts. I'm not talking about the person who's confused over some nuance of the Scripture. I'm not talking about the person who is struggling to understand what looks like a contradiction. I'm talking about the person who's willfully blind and stubbornly blind and their belief is obstinate and irrational and inexcusable. And I need you to understand something. The sigh of Jesus isn't just simply exasperation. The sigh is not simply frustration. The sigh of Jesus is filled with compassion and sorrow and grief. The feeling of Jesus should be the feeling of every Bible-believing and God-fearing Christian. Jesus understands the ruin of the soul and the heart bent on unbelief. Jesus understands these wicked men are inviting judgment on their eternal souls. Were these men enemies of Jesus? Yes. Was their obstinate opposition and unbelief a one-way ticket to hell? Yes. But their blindness and their hardness and their wickedness was an occasion of sorrow and grief for the Savior. Grief over sin and sorrow over sinners is one of the greatest evidences of grace in the life of the believer. It will become proof. That you love the things that he loves. That you care about the things he cares about and the plans that he has plans for. The true believer will always regard the wicked and the stubborn and the unbeliever with pity and grief and concern. This was the heart and the mind of David when he wrote, I beheld the transgressors and I was grieved, it says in Psalm 99, 158. In Ezekiel it says, they sighed and cried for the abominations done in the land in Ezekiel chapter 9, verse 4. Even Lot, it was said, he was vexed in his righteous soul with their unlawful deeds of those who were around him, it says in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 8. Paul, the apostle, wrote, I have great heaven and continual sorrow for my brethren in Romans chapter 9, verse 2. 
in that very context, Paul says something that I can't even imagine, that I can't even begin to comprehend. Paul said, I would rather find myself accursed if it meant that my brothers and my sisters could go to heaven. Do you understand what he's saying? Here's what he's saying. Here's what Paul the Apostle is saying. If me going to hell would somehow ensure that you would go to heaven, I would do it. I can't say that. I can begin to entertain the notion when I think of my children and my grandchildren. I can begin to entertain the notion when I begin to think of my commitment to them. And if somehow that would create a mechanism for them to go to heaven, I can't even begin to dream about that for you. I wish I could say with all my heart, I would gladly go to hell if I knew that everyone listening to the sound of my voice would go to heaven. But because of my carnality and my immaturity and my selfishness and my wickedness, I can't bring myself to even begin to contemplate that. But yet Jesus is our head. We are his members. He grieves over the situation of the lost. And we grieve. Is that true of you? Is Christ's hurt your hurt? Is his grief your grief? Do you feel that hurt and that pain and that sorrow when you see human beings trapped in continual sin and imprisoned in persistent, stubborn, willful unbelief? The make-believer is not grieved by the stubborn, willful unbelief. They are careless and indifferent to the souls of others. The unbeliever doesn't allow the grief of Jesus to concern himself or herself for, for very long. Jesus sighs deeply over the unbelief of the religious leaders. He continues to sigh deeply over the willful, stubborn, obstinate unbelief in every generation. How many sermons have to be preached? How many miracles and signs have to be done? No wonder Paul wrote, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God in Ephesians 4.30. Do not quench the spirit, he writes in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 9, 19. The writer of Hebrews in chapter 3, verse 10 says, Wherefore I was grieved with that generation and said, They do always err in their heart. They have not known my ways. Which generation is the writer of Hebrews talking about? It's the generation that wandered in the wilderness. But the writer of Hebrews is then applying it to the generation to which he's living in, who have, we're just one generation away from the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus, but people still wouldn't believe. They still wouldn't believe. They still wouldn't believe. Jesus cares about the poor and the lame and the least and the lost. And he cares about social justice. But it's never, ever a substitute for those who remain estranged from God by their wicked, dark, unbelieving hearts. Everyone. 
everyone, without exception, will exist somewhere, forever. Your mom, your dad, your brother, your sister, your husband, your wife, your children. And Jesus says flatly, No sign will be given to this generation. Well, what about a global flood? Will that convince you? What about plagues? That'll convince you, right? How about opening up the Red Sea? That'll convince you, right? How about Joshua causing the sun to stand still? That'll convince you, right? How about eyes opened and ears opened and hearts opened and dead coming back to life? That will convince you, right? There's a proverb. It's not in the Bible. For those who believe, no proof is necessary. For those who don't believe, no proof is possible. Blaise Pascal famously said, Belief is a wise wager. Granted that faith cannot be proved, what harm will come to you if you gamble on its truth and it proves false? If you gain, you gain all. If you lose, you lose nothing. Wager then without hesitation that he exists, unquote. Thousands of people bet on the game yesterday. Some won. Some lost. What are you betting on? What are you counting on? Why doesn't Jesus provide a sign? I know that's what some of you are thinking. Why not just cause the sun to come down? Why not just cause the moon to come down? Why not just suspend the law of gravity? Why not do that? Because then you would be compelled to believe. You're manipulated into believing. You're overwhelmed into believing. You see, God loves you. And he wants a friendship and a fellowship with you based on trust. And faith. Have you ever been manipulated into a relationship that really wasn't healthy? Have you ever been tricked or duped or bought? What are the chances of that relationship actually succeeding? If you are manipulated or compelled. Why doesn't Jesus provide a sign? The religious leaders willfully refuse to see the signs that have already been given. They chose blindness because they were wicked and corrupt and greedy. They were never going to believe. There's a never enough signs. There's never enough evidence. Their, their life is like a spiritual black hole with the event horizon near to them that no matter how much light comes their way, it just simply is consumed by a dark heart and it never goes anywhere. And number two, the religious leader's request was outrageous and unjust in light of the hundreds of prophecies and thousands of miracles that would lead anyone with any inclination to consider the claims of Jesus and believe him. 
The religious leaders had no intention of believing. The religious leaders failed to recognize the love of God and faith and true religion. And without faith, it's impossible to please God. The religious leaders were evil and adulterous. They were apostates committed to false gods and man-made religion and empty ritual. What they wanted was something that would make a quiver go up their liver. And it's even more than that. The religious leaders wanted to pick the sign that would satisfy them. They wanted to pick the proof that would make them happy. They wanted to pick the sign or the proof that would satisfy them. And guess what? They weren't looking for some astounding truth, some irrefutable argument, some miraculous experience, some unbelievable deliverance. And God's great concern isn't providing some irrefutable evidence, some miraculous deliverance. God wants to come to people in their sickness and in their sorrow and in the emptiness of their life and in the emptiness of their heart in the corruption of their circumstances and the death of their soul. And he wants to show up. And cleanse you and forgive you and reconcile you to himself. Are unbelievers sometimes given signs? Yes. What are you willing to accept as evidence? In Matthew's gospel, Jesus plainly tells them that the ability to comprehend spiritual truth is a gracious gift from God sovereignly bestowed on the elect. The reprobate are passed over. They reap the consequences of their unbelief and rebellion. In Matthew 11, verse 14, Jesus quotes Isaiah, and he says, Hearing you will hear, and you won't understand. Seeing you will see, and you won't perceive. For the hearts of people have grown dull. Their ears are hard of hearing. Their eyes are closed. Lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears. Lest they should understand with their hearts and turn. So that I should heal them. He's quoting Jehovah. And he's applying it to himself. In the same way that God spoke to the children of Israel. He's saying, I'm speaking to you. But if you'd open up your eyes, if you'd open up your ears, if you'd open up your hearts, look what it says in verse 13, and he left them. There's no darker words written in the New Testament than those four words. And he left them, and he left them, and he left them. The spiritually blind are eventually abandoned. Note the force of the words. He left them. John Stott writes, if to believe in Jesus is man's first duty, then not to believe him is his chief sin. What do I have to do? You have to believe that God sent Jesus, that he loves you and that he died for you and that he rose from the dead for you. The religious leaders refused to believe. And in spite of the prophecies, in spite of the miracles, in spite of the words, in spite of the deeds. 
And when the religious leaders made their decision to abandon Jesus, Jesus made his decision to abandon them. In the Franco-German War of 1870 and 71, there were two unexploded shells that were found near a house and the homeowner cleaned them up and he put them on display. He dragged them into his house and he put them next to the fireplace. A few weeks later, he showed these interesting objects to a visitor who happened to be an expert in munitions. And suddenly he had this horrible thought. What if these rounds are live? What if they're still loaded? And after examining them carefully, he said, Get them away from the fire right now. He said, They're as deadly as the day that they were made. And without realizing it, the homeowner had been living in grave peril in deep danger and when you drag your unbelief and when you drag an obstinate wicked perverse unbelief into your heart and you set it next to your heart you run a terrible risk of having it explode on you Seeking signs and unbelief are like those two shells. Unbelief destroys our capacity to see, it says in John 3.36. Unbelief disturbs the soul and hardens our sensibility and causes us to question the authority of God. Unbelief hardens the heart and stumbles in God's way and then severs us from God. Unbelief provides the incentive for the unbeliever to both envy and persecute the believer. And Peter, writing to the Christians in painful peril and persecution, wrote, For the time has come for judgment to begin in the house of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the end of those who refuse to obey the gospel of God? In Peter's world, unbelief was the same as disobedience. I've told this story before, but I'll say it again. About a man in Hyde Park who stood on a soapbox, but he could just as well have been on the History Channel or the Science Channel. He could just as well be your history professor, your college professor, your unbelieving mother, father, brother, sister. A man stood on a soapbox in Hyde Park and he began pouring scorn on Christianity. People tell me that God exists, but I don't see him. People tell me that there's life after death, but I don't see it. People tell me there's a judgment to come, but I don't see it. People tell me there's a heaven and a hell, but I don't see it. And a smattering of applause went around the audience. And another person struggled onto the soapbox. People tell me that there's no that there's green grass all around, but I don't see it. People tell me there's a blue sky up above, but I don't see it. People tell me that there are trees nearby, but I don't see it. Because I'm blind. Just because you can't see it doesn't make it real. Helen Keller 
perhaps one of the most famous blind people who ever lived, said the most pathetic person in the world is someone who has sight but no vision. Is that what you demand? A sign? A miracle? A quiver? In your liver? A thrill? A chill? A pill? Do you know what demanding a sign does? It means minimum a lack of faith. What about the Word of God? What about the work of God? What is it about the Word of God and the work of God and the person of Jesus and the cross of Calvary that's so insufficient for you? Are there genuine signs and wonders? Yes. Does God heal? Yes. Does God deliver? Yes. Signs sometimes follow the preaching of God's word, but they are the product of the Holy Spirit's presence, not the purpose of preaching. You are. You are. Your heart and your soul and your future. A wicked and an adulterous generation requires a sign. But Jesus in Matthew says no sign is going to be given except the sign of Jonah. Jonah was in the belly of the sea creature for three days. Jesus will be in the earth for three days. Jonah will come back to life and so will Jesus. Jesus, in speaking about the rich man and Lazarus, says in his story, he has the rich man saying... Send Lazarus back because if someone comes back from the dead, then my brothers will believe. And Father Abraham says, Did they have Moses and the prophets? And he goes, No, no, Father Abraham, no. As if the Bible's not enough. As if the miracles aren't enough. As if the deliverance is not enough. And Jesus says these words. But even if a person were to come back from the dead, for some that still wouldn't be evidence enough. How about you? What will it take to convince you? What will provide sufficient evidence? Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, I pray for each and every person within the sound of my voice. Lord, I pray that somehow, some way, Lord, we as Christians could love the things that you love and grieve over the things that you grieve over. That, Lord, our plans would be that your plans would become our plans and your your wisdom would become our wisdom. And what you say is what we will say. And Lord, for the unbeliever and the make believer. Lord, I pray that you would extend an invitation to them. That they would search their soul and that they would search their heart. Lord, I pray that you would extend the invitation that they could experience love and grace and mercy and forgiveness and hope. Lord, I pray that that gentle knocking on the surface of the soul would be responded to
that people would hear and respond, that they would hear and believe that Jesus Christ is the Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.